Welcome to Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the artistic director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. This week, we're presenting two episodes on Living with Dying. Part two, featuring Lorna Crozier and Sherry Fitch, will appear on Tuesday. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Librarian Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Our bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street and if you're not tuning in from the Ottawa area, I'm sure there's an independent bookseller wherever you are who would be happy to sell you a copy of any of the books featured in our virtual season. Today, we'll be hearing about what death means to the living and how we carry loved ones with us. How should we cope with loss? If grief is unavoidable, what is the best way to make peace with it? Up first is a conversation between CBC Ottawa's Ithil Musa and Dakshana Bhaskaramurti. Dakshana is an award-winning reporter and the author of This Is Not The End Of Me, It tells the story of a young husband and father who, when diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 33, sets out to build a legacy for his infant son. It recounts Leighton Reed's three-year journey as he tried desperately to stay alive for his young son Finn and then found purpose in preparing Finn for a world without him. We'll start with a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation. Leighton quickly adjusted the settings on his DSLR and handed it to her. Then he curled up in front of his grandparents' shared tombstone, pretending he was a corpse. In truth, he looked like an overgrown toddler at nap time. His hands stacked under his right cheek, knees folded towards his chest, the seat of his gray sweatpants soaked from the wet grass. As Candace rolled her eyes and pressed down on the shutter, Leighton, his eyes squeezed shut, smiled. He was still alive enough to play dead. Thank you, Dakshana, for joining us today. I'm looking forward to interviewing you about your debut book, This Is Not the End of Me, Lessons on Living from a Dying Man. Can you tell us what this book is about and and how you came to write it? So This Is Not the End of Me, is the real life story of Leighton Reed. Uh, He's a man who was given a terminal diagnosis in his early 30s, just before he was about to become a father for the first time. It's a story of the final years of his life and the extraordinary lengths that he and his family went to to keep him alive. But it's also the story of the evolution that Leighton went through to accept his mortality and then prepare his son for life without him. Like myself, you're, you're a journalist. One of the things I thought about as I was reading this book, um, which I thought was very, very moving, and we'll get into sort of the different aspects of the book and the way that you wrote it. How did you know that you wanted to write a book as opposed to, say, a feature article or a series of article articles? What was it about his story that sort of signaled to you that it deserved this, this kind of treatment? So the story of this book coming together is it was never meant to be a book. Because I'm a journalist, I only think in short form. 
So when I connected with Leighton initially to start this reporting in 2013, I didn't even quite know what the final form it would take would be, but I assumed it would be a long feature in the newspaper, maybe something that I would freelance for a magazine, uh, but, you know, maybe 10,000 words at the most. And and the time frame and the focus um, were so much more narrow than, than what the book ended up being. It was just a situation where I didn't know when to stop reporting. Because this was unlike any other project uh, I'd ever taken on, this wasn't something that was assigned to me, this wasn't something where I knew that there was any kind of deadline looming, I just thought, I know this is an extraordinary story. I know that I have very unusual access to this person and to their family. And I'm just going to see where the reporting takes me. And I thought that it would maybe be a project I spent a few months on and then I would publish something. And it turned into many, many years of reporting. And, uh, you know, it came out just a couple of weeks ago. So basically from the beginning to the end, that was... Uh, you know, almost seven years. Now, tell me, tell me about that access. How did you get? How, how did you get access to his story? This is a really personal journey, and you talk about some really, really difficult things. Um, you know, because he, he he was, as you mentioned, quite young, had you know a new family, and he wanted to live for his son. How did you? come to tell his story and to gain that trust? So Leighton and I met in a very unusual way. Uh, he was my wedding photographer. I hired him to shoot my wedding in Halifax. That's where my uh, my husband's family is from in 2012. And I was so taken by the photos that he took. Uh, it's hard to describe, but what he captured was so different and so refreshing to see uh, in this kind of sea of monotony that is wedding photography. So he had a very sharp sense of humor that came through in the pictures that he took. And I could just sense, you know, this guy and I would vibe. And so I hired him and we spent, you know, my wedding day together. I actually spent more time with him than I spent with my husband because I didn't have a wedding party. So everywhere I went to get my hair done and to, you know, change out of this outfit into this other one, Leighton was the person that was by my side for all of it. And we just connected immediately as though we were old friends. Like, I don't know what it was, but we just had personalities that really meshed. And after the wedding day was done, he sent me the pictures. You know, I was back in Toronto at that time and I thought, okay, we'll be Facebook friends and probably nothing ever more than that. Um, and a year later, he reached out to me by email and he revealed that he had this stage four melanoma diagnosis. And I knew from this sort of passive reading of his Facebook that he was also due to become a father in just a couple of months. And being a journalist, I just started asking a lot of questions and he was interested in finding some kind of way to log what was happening in his life, be it a journal or a blog or something and wanted some advice from me on, on how he might do that. So we started having these conversations and that was initially the purpose of them to, to give him a little bit of help since you know I write professionally. But the more we talked and the more open I could see he was to wanting to discuss what was happening in his life, I thought, 
this is a story I think I want to write and I want to talk to more people than just him to tell it. It's a really strange thing to have someone be so open with you. Uh, the, the people that are featured in this story are unlike any of the ones that I've interviewed in my 12 years as a journalist. I, I think it was a mix of just lucking out and finding people who were uh, so open and, and willing to expose their vulnerabilities. But I also think that given the situation that Leighton and his family were in, you know, they were afraid to sometimes talk to each other and afraid to share their fears with each other. And so as a journalist, you know, I'm in the business of asking questions and then just listening. And I think that that was something that was really welcome. Um, I don't think that that was something that they had a lot of in their lives. So I think that that was why they wanted to share so much with me. Yeah. And, you know, as journalists, we're in an industry where we're you know, often told, you know, to keep, you know, our subjects at arm's length, you know, not to get too close. Did you have an idea of what you were getting into when you started this book? Because this is not an easy topic to navigate. And your role kind of changes sometimes. It almost feels like you're a friend or a therapist or someone, you're that constant, right? Talk to me about that. This was a very strange thing for me to navigate because the relationship that I have with sources is usually very, very professional. You know, we'll make small talk, but they often know almost nothing about my life. And it's it's a very kind of one-way relationship where I'm extracting information from them. But in this case, right off the bat, things were were not the way they usually are because we already had this relationship and and we had kind of a budding friendship already. So I knew moving into this space that the rules that governed it would be different. I didn't know what they were, but I knew that this was this was not going to be like a typical Globe and Mail story that I was writing. And I had friends of mine who at the beginning stages when they found out that, you know, I wanted to write this story about this acquaintance who was dying, they warned me. They said, do you know what you're getting into? You know, you don't really know this person very well, but you're meeting them and you're investing in their life so heavily at this kind of critical point where you know that they're dying and this might happen in the next couple of months or the next couple of years, are you ready emotionally to handle something like that? And it was so abstract an idea. Um, I mean, intellectually, I knew that, that what they were saying was true, but I couldn't really wrap my head around the fact that this person that I, you know, was having now chats with a couple of times a week, uh, would, eventually not be in my life anymore. And I just thought I have to kind of live in the moment and follow this story and I'll figure out the personal and the emotional sides of it along the way. And uh, I guess I kind of did. And and sometimes it was a little bit rocky because uh, an incredibly close friendship blossomed between us. I was talking to Leighton at some points more often than a lot of people that I would describe as my closest friends. And I got very personally invested in his well-being. When I knew he had appointments coming up, 
I was calling to check in, not just because I was writing about him, but because I genuinely wanted to know what the outcome of these appointments were and, and how he was doing. I could feel the weight of that. You know, I, I, I imagine what it must have been like for you to, to invest so much emotionally. You know, it's because it, 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 these aren't sort of clear lines sort of in the sand where, you, you know, the subject is on one side and you're on the other and you're looking objectively. But I thought you did an incredible job. And I'll give you one example that I thought was really, uh, you know, a, a good example, which is uh, when he's trying this um, Gerson therapy, this sort of um, alternative therapy. And the way that you write about it, it wasn't like a hard journalist hat. You know, it was like a soft felt hat. You know, it wasn't that like, well, you know, the science doesn't prove this and it's not, why is he doing this? It was just, it was like, this is the option he's taken. These are sort of the facts around it. This is why he's doing it and why he's considering it. And, and I wanted to just talk to you about that because I felt like you did such a great job of, of still being factual, but also showing care in the choices that people make when their back is against the wall and, and the stakes are so high. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I think on paper, uh, if somebody had, you know, written a few sentences down about who Leighton was and that he was embarking on this journey, um, you know, down the path of alternative therapy and a very extreme alternative therapy at that. Um, I think I immediately would have judged this person um, and, you know, come to a lot, drawn a lot of conclusions about who they were and what their beliefs were and immediately put myself in the position of, oh, I wouldn't do that if I was in their situation. But I knew at the start of this project that I had to take any preconceived notions um, just off the table because Leighton isn't the type of person who I guess fits that stereotype that I, I might have had about, you know, who would do alternative therapy, who would ignore, you know, the the studies and this enormous body of research suggesting that this is, you know, not only an ineffectual treatment, but, you know, something that could very well be harmful. Because I had already this affection for Leighton and I knew this desperation in his situation, I thought, let me be open to hearing why he's doing this. Let me be open to hearing why his family is doing this. And I found it so remarkable talking to his oncologist at the time who steered me kind of in that direction too. And she said, you know, I think it's very easy for all of us to assume what we would do if we were in a certain situation, but how can we know until we're there? And she was supportive as much as a Western uh, practicing physician can be of, of his trying this therapy. But 
I thought it would get in the way of the story for me to uh, insert myself and opinions that I had in it, um, in both the writing and how I conducted myself when I was talking to him and I was talking to his family members. I just tried to be open to letting them tell me what their motivations were and, and what their feelings were. And they went through a little bit of an evolution too and in, in how they approached this. So um, I thought that it was in service of the story to, to approach things that way. Yeah. You know, Leighton is obviously the central figure, you know, in your book, but he's supported by so many of his family members, you know, and uh, including his wife, Candace, who not only his life partner and the mother of his child, but she was his main caregiver. And and for me, one of the takeaways was really how your book kind of illustrates the the role and the importance of caregivers. Were you surprised by any of that? Yeah, you know, I I wrote in the acknowledgments of this book, um, the the part that I wrote to Candace, um, that. I didn't set out to have this be any more than Layton's story, but it very much became her story too. Um, and I was so taken seeing Candace in the role that she played in the house and the role that she played outside of the house when she could escape all of these layered responsibilities of being Layton's caregiver and being a mother and being a wife and being an employee. Um, and I feel so fortunate that she trusted me in the way that Leighton did. And from the first visit that I made to Halifax, where I kind of embedded in their house for a few days, um, you know, there were these moments where she would take the dog out for a walk and she would have Finn, who was just a couple months old with her. And I could just tell that it was like, you know, popping the cork to get out of that house and let her real feelings and her true feelings and, and her anxieties sort of release a little bit because she had to be this strong figure in this house. She was the glue that was holding everything together, but that's an enormous amount of pressure to put on someone and especially someone who's the mother of an infant, you know, there were so many sacrifices that she made, uh, you know, so many months spent sleeping on the couch with this baby um, who was screaming throughout the night just because she wanted Leighton, who was terminally ill, to have space and quiet to himself upstairs. So it was remarkable to see the caregiving that she did, but also the caregiving that she got from people around her. Her mother uh, is a sort of peripheral character in the book, but her mother was the person who I think kept her going day to day. And um, there were these moments that she described for me that were just like a dagger in my heart when she told me about how sometimes the only escape she had um, were getting into her car at night with the baby in the back and going for these long drives and calling her mom and crying. These were conversations that she couldn't have in the house because she was afraid of latent hearing and feeling guilty or feeling like a burden. But she needed care too as a caregiver. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I took away from it and, and, and the support that she also got because it's like, it almost, it's like a, it's like a village holding up Leighton and, and, and really on his journey to recovery or 
the hope, right? Um, I want to give you a chance, Dr. Shana, to read from your book, because I know there's a, an excerpt that you've chosen. Um, please, if you could do that now. Leighton quickly adjusted the settings on his DSLR and handed it to her. Then he curled up in front of his grandparents' shared tombstone, pretending he was a corpse. In truth, he looked like an overgrown toddler at nap time, his hands stacked under his right cheek, knees folded towards his chest, the seat of his gray sweatpants soaked from the wet grass. As Candace rolled her eyes and pressed down the shutter, Leighton, his eyes squeezed shut, smiled. He was still alive enough to play dead. That is lovely. And tell me about why you chose that section of your book to read. <laughs> I feel like that section represents this very important turning point in the book. To me, this book is really about this evolution that Leighton goes through. At the start, he is in denial about his fate. He has a baby on the way and is just so desperate to find some miraculous way that he can stay alive to see this child not only be born, but grow up and grow old. And he was so desperate. He he was, you know, closing off a lot of his life and he was, you know, um, giving up so much uh, in you know, in service of this goal. And then there's a certain point and certain events that that happen that uh, kind of turn a switch and he accepts his mortality and it's this very freeing thing for him. And the way he lives his life changes, the way he relates to his family changes and uh, he starts planning for his death and, and he starts talking about death and the very kind of practical parts of dying um, in a way that is open and kind of dark and funny and makes some people uncomfortable. And uh, this, this scene that I just read was him um, going to the graveyard where his grandparents are buried because he wanted to see if he wanted to be buried there. And what better way than, you know, as though he was in a mattress store, kind of try before you buy. Um, and, and he just lay down on the grass and he wanted Candace to document, um, you know, this, <laughs> this important occasion where he was trying out his grave before, you know, it becoming his final resting place. Yeah. And, you know, I remember that part of the, of the book and how he posted that photo on social media. And some people were, it, it didn't sit so well with some people, you know, even though it was a joke at his own expense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, one of the, the things, one of the downsides to him, you know, um, transitioning into being very open and, and embracing his mortality was that other people weren't so ready for it. And he, in in the first couple of years after getting this terminal diagnosis, was very closed off about it. Um, and there were only a handful of people who even knew that he was sick. And part of that was just this fear that people would treat him differently, that people would handle him with kid gloves after finding out that he was dying. And, uh, you know, that fear was well-founded because that's very much how people behaved. And I... Um, 
I, I think that uh, the people, especially who were responding to that photo, kind of horrified, um, you know, thinking that it was disrespectful for him to be taking a picture like that. Um, you know, they were uncomfortable. I mean, at least this is what he thought, and this is kind of what I thought. They were uncomfortable with someone so young being open to death. I think death is something that we are supposed to be afraid of, that we're not supposed to talk about. It's impolite to bring it up in conversation. Um, and it's to the detriment of people um, who uh, are are ill and, and want to plan what the end will look like for themselves. Um, I think that there was uh, a lot of comfort in the lives of the people that loved him near the end because they had had the chance to speak openly about this and know what Leighton wanted. Yeah, you know, I think that's part of even my own growth in reading your book, because I felt like I was, and I am generally a little bit uncomfortable talking about death. And so I think when I read the title of your book, I thought, oh my God, am I ready for this? And am I ready for it during COVID-19 when I'm trying to cheer myself up? But I actually found that I felt obviously a lot of sadness at the end, even though I knew it was coming. Um, because I had grown to like Leighton so much. And, um, but I, I felt like I had a, an appreciation for death and it being a part of life. Did this book change you at all and your views on, on, on death? I think before I started working on this, I had a lot of the same views that that you had going into into reading it and and that so many people have um death wasn't really something i ever talked about um a couple of you know relatives had had died known that i was close to um and you know you found out and you went to the funeral and didn't really speak of it much more after that the thing uh was when i was working on this um when i was working on the reporting of it um, my dad got very sick. He had a neurological condition very similar to Parkinson's and it's degenerative. And he went from being, you know, um, a very healthy person, um, you know, kind of high functioning person to slowly losing his ability to speak. And then his mobility uh, became very limited. He was confined to uh, a wheelchair. Um, and um, eventually he was unable to read and, and really to communicate um, with us. And I recognize this as my dad dying. We knew for the last couple of years of his life that he was deemed palliative, um, but it was a very slow process, his dying, in the way that I knew as soon as uh, as Leighton sent me that email in 2013 that he was dying. Um, and I didn't let that color how I communicated with him. Um, and I learned that up until the very end of his life, all he wanted was to have normal conversations with people, enjoy the same pleasures he had five years earlier or 10 years earlier before the word cancer had, had ever entered his life. And um, I took you know, so many lessons from this experience of being present for the end of Leighton's life um, as, as I saw my dad's deterioration. 
And my dad ended up, um, you know, having to move into a long-term care home um, a couple of years ago. And then in March, um, you know, just like so many other people who have families in long-term care, we learned that we weren't going to be able to visit him for some time because the long-term care home was in lockdown. And, um, you know, uh, a couple of weeks later, um, we got word that he wasn't doing so well. Some of the symptoms that uh, the nurse described him having seemed to align with what I was reading about COVID-19. And then we found out that he was one of the first cases um, of COVID-19 in his long-term care home and he died. And it was, you know, um, something that I had to process without being at his bedside. I hadn't seen him in a couple of weeks, but I feel like I had um, an unexpected amount of peace with this end for him because I had been the best person I think I could have been um, in the weeks and months and years leading up to that moment. I never wanted him to feel when he was in my company like he was someone whose death was on the horizon and I would go in and read the newspaper to him and I would tell him about things that were happening in my life, vacations that were coming up, you know, in, in the same way that I did before. And I really do credit Leighton a great deal for, for you know, the, the nice moments that we had um, throughout that, that end stage of his life. And I, I feel like in these months since then, um, you know, it's... I, it, it still feels like I don't have a ton of closure because I wasn't there at the end. We haven't been able to have a funeral for him. But I did a lot of grieving before he was gone. And it seems like um, a process that will be with me for a long time in the same way that I feel like I'm still grieving Leighton and um, reading uh, this book, writing this book, listening to these interviews have afforded me all this extra time. And I, I don't think that when people die, we, we need to move on or, or, you know, not let them still be present. Um, I think it's actually a really life enriching thing to, to, to hold on to bits and pieces of people, even if they bring a, a real mix of emotions. Dakshana, thank you so much. Um, I, I'm so moved, uh, talking to you and you putting this book's debut into greater context in your own life. And um, I think it's, it's an incredible, incredible book. And I, and I highly recommend that, you know, people read it, even if they are wary about the topic of death, because I, I, I do think that before death, of course, there's life and Leighton had an incredible one. And, and and you captured it so incredibly beautifully. Um, this is not the end of me. Lessons on living from a dying man. Dakshana, thank you. That was Dakshana Bhaskaramurti in conversation with CBC's Isil Musa on her book, This Is Not the End of Me. Up next, it's Anita Leahy. Anita is an Ottawa-based poet, journalist, essayist, and series editor of The Best Canadian Poetry. She spoke with Ellen Chang Richardson. Ellen is a poet, writer, and editor, the founder of Little Birds Poetry, and the co-founder of the Riverbed Reading Series. 
We'll begin with a short taste of The Last Goldfish, a true tale of friendship, followed by their conversation. I parked. The clock on the dash said 7.28 p.m., two minutes to spare. Before Lou had come into my life four years earlier, I'd never been late or even nearly late for anything. The floor of the bedroom I shared with my sister, Wendy, had yet to disappear beneath heaps of clothing and binders and magazines. I'd been orderly, reliable, cautious, a child. The rain was now teeming. Ready to run? Bad idea, said Lou. More raindrops hit you that way. It's like you're, she thrust her arms forward, nearly whacking the windshield, rushing right into them. That's ridiculous. If you run, you're in it for less time. Louisa gripped the handle on the passenger door. Let's find out. When people talk about dumb faith, they don't mean it's stupid to have faith. They mean that faith, when it truly exists, equals clarity. A wordless knowing that I still remember and reach for. Though I understand now that I really knew and still know next to nothing. I believe accepting that strange state of unknowing is what it means to grow up. I mean, I think I believe this. If I can claim to have grown up at all, I haven't come this way peacefully. I just wanted to stay in that land of possibility that Lou and I had made. A place where maybe if you stayed calm and focused, you could dodge raindrops or outrun them or somehow a little of both. That's so beautiful. And that's definitely something that we've all experienced before racing our friends through the rain to see who's right. <laughs> Do we get to spoil the surprise for readers? Who, who won that competition? <laughs> um, uh, we were soaked by the time <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, both of us were soaked. So <laughs> I went one way, she went the other. We were both right, we were both wrong. I don't know. <laughs> It was, the point of it was just having the debate, I think. That's, that's the depth of friendship, isn't it? Having that fun debate where you both kind of come out right on similar topics or if not right on similar topics, wrong on different topics, but then able to. Yeah, I think like in our sort of abstract minds, we have this idea that a friend is someone you agree with all the time. But in reality your your friends that you love to be with the most are the ones who poke you a little bit right <laughs> yeah so, um or that that you can poke in return and you have little back and forths that have some energy in them you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah my best friend is always telling me are you sure you want to wear that yeah <laughs> but i want to talk about that that depth of friendship like that really weaves its way throughout this book and The book is 264 pages, including the acknowledgments, which I read and I thought were beautiful. Um, But you had my breath, me holding my breath the whole time, like nodding in solidarity. And then, you know, for a very three short pages near the end of the book, for all you avid interested readers out there, bawling my eyes out in a good way. (laughs) But I want to quote you in quoting Lou here. You say very poignantly that this is what we are. We're messy. We can't always trust ourselves. So we kind of need those friends to like help us 
point out those little things. How has revisiting your memories with Lou changed that for you, if at all? Um, I don't know. So that's interesting. That quote is actually sort of a paraphrasing from a poem by Bill Bissett, um, which was called, I think, something like, Christ, I wouldn't know normal if I saw it when. <laughs> and, and it was one of the first poems in the, um, the uh, I forget exactly the title, the, the Oxford um, Anthology of Canadian Verse that edited by Margaret Atwood, that was um, a text in my English course in first year at Ryerson. And, um, and I wrote the whole thing down in my journal. And that was something my friend Louisa and I both did from somewhere in the middle of high school onward. We were constantly writing down quotes or poems that we liked or the words of songs that we liked. And you know, when you can't find, you can't understand all the words of the song. And you, I mean, in those days we had cassette tapes and we would rewind and rewind and rewind and try and find the right word and write it down. Um, and so there's that kind of aspect of friendship at that age, I guess. Um, and, and, and what you and I were talking about, about how you sort of, you need a friend who's going to push you a little bit or call you, call you on things that you need to be called on. Your crap. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but there's also something particular, I guess what spending all of these years with those memories in, in, in the, in the, in the meantime, making new friends at different stages in my life and, you know, life going on and, and making friends in different contexts in different ways, like through work or through having a kid or um, through other, you know, things that you do out in the world. And, and it, it's, it, it's, it's, you sort of learn it's the same, but different. It's the same in that, you know, right away, I think when, you connect with somebody and it's a wonderful feeling and it's it, it's an exciting thing every time it happens and sometimes that carries forward into something lasting and deeper and sometimes it doesn't but even if it doesn't which might have to do with circumstance it's still really wonderful to have that happen in life it's really buoying um, mm -hmm. and important um, but but that having that in youth i think is it a different thing in a way because I think it then takes a part in helping you shape who you are and how you see yourself. Um, partly because of how you see, how you, you're always comparing yourself to the people around you, engaging how you think about things. Like we do it all the time throughout our lives, but I think when you're, when you're 15, 16, 18, there's something much more potent about it. And something about that time, you have a kind of time at that age to sink into things with a friend that you don't have when you're older and you're working and you're, you can't just like spend half the weekend lying on the floor in your friend's room writing bad poetry, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> but you do that when you're a teenager and that has an impact on, on the friendship, you know, and what it means to you. So Mm -hmm. it's different yeah mm -hmm. and and that something about that lingers under the surface I guess throughout your life if mm -hmm. you're lucky to have found it yeah I can definitely see it in the writing when you talk 
about reflecting. There's, there's this, there's this poignant reflecting as well in the voice of you as you write this from where you are. I was living in Toronto in 1994 when Louisa died. She was living in Vancouver at the time. And a few, just a few months later, I moved to Ottawa with my boyfriend who was coming to teacher's college here, but we had finished um, our journalism degrees and I was working um, as a journalist in Toronto at a, at a, a community uh, newspaper in Regent Park and Cabbage Town. And when I came here, um, I intended to freelance and I wound up getting a job at a local magazine. So I was actually working um, and, but before I went to work in the morning, I was writing down everything I could remember, um, which I didn't know what I was going to do with that at the time. I just felt like I had to write everything down, I think, because I was afraid of forgetting. Yeah, it was a way to hold on to as much as I could. And, um, and I, I guess I felt like. I, I mean, I don't know. Looking back now, I think I was just trying to stop her from disappearing altogether, right? Um, she was she was 22, and it seemed, um, and she had big plans, you know. So um, I was mad, <laughs> as people get when that's a normal part of grief, no matter what the circumstances. Even if someone's lived a good long life, you can be really angry that the universe has taken them away from you, you know, um, it's, it's part of how, and so part of how I coped was to write everything down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I knew that unless something happened to me, life was going to go on. And I think I was afraid of leaving everything behind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That actually brings me to one of my favorite quotes of yours. It's on page 205. And it's, I think for many of us, it's the past, not the future. That's the truly frightening place to go. Um, it made me think actually about how death was a huge part of everyday conversation for me growing up. Like it was interwoven versus a thing to fear. You know, I lost my a very close professor or teacher, I suppose you would call them back in high school of mine when I was in grade nine. Then I lost like a good friend of mine one year after graduating high school uh, who passed away from a heart attack of all things at like 21, 22 years old. And then, you know, you lose your grandparents around that time. Also, I uh, lost my aunt. And it just, I also moved around a lot. So I think I never allowed myself to connect with somebody like you and Louisa connected when you first met um, over that piece of paper in your binder, which for readers who are listening, you need to go buy the book to find out what piece of paper we're talking about. <laughs> um, but now... A very terrifying French teacher. Yeah, <laughs> which we've all had. <laughs> um, if not French, definitely like math, science, something. Well, that's interesting that you say that. The, I, I should let you go get to your question, but let me just say that not, it's, what you say is not true for everyone. Not everybody encounters death so directly at a young age. Um, and I didn't really think about that when I, when I was younger. And I mean, I hadn't, you know, I had lost 
other people as well, but they were older and not as close to me by then. Um, but not long, not long before that, a, a good friend of ours lost her mother who also had cancer. So we were 20 and our friends, our, you know, other close friends, mom died. And so, yeah, it was like, but not, so it, not everybody does just by happenstance encounter much death before middle age in our, in our society here in Canada. And it's so, it's not always easy for people to encounter or talk about or grapple with, you know? Um, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because I was going to ask how you felt or how you feel about death now after going through that as a young adult and how that feeling has evolved or not since you were living it in the 80s and 90s. And you might remember this, having lost a friend um and like i alluded to i was quite caught up in my own loss and the and the anger i felt that her her life had been pulled out from under her feet um and her her future and and what she might have you know contributed to the to the world because she was you know like so many people she was she was bright and she was ambitious and she had ideas and um and she had a kind of presence that infected people and um and i was furious and i spent you know those the early period um after she was gone easily enraged by any sense i got that the people around me weren't appreciating the life that they had um uh you know people who were complaining for no good reason or <laughs> or or no good reason that i could see and and you know so that's part of youth and it's part of the just the rawness of of loss um and over time you know since then um i've encountered unfortunately various other losses and and seen friends have um tragic losses under tragic circumstances and um and and so over time you just come i come to more of a peace with with this being a fact of life for everybody everybody's going to lose someone and many someones throughout their life. Um, and some of the circumstances will be worse than others. Um, some of them will be less fair. Some of them have to do with war and cruelty and injustice. And some of them are more ordinary run of the mill illness and age and accident. But it's all whatever the circumstances, those losses leave big holes in people's lives. And so I just feel an awareness of that. And I feel an awareness that the people I do have in my life aren't, they don't belong to me. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to me or to them in the coming years or the coming days. And I can't expect that everything's going to work out the way I want. So, and that doesn't mean I'm walking around 
fearing the worst or expecting calamity all the time. It's more like a kind of acceptance that um, we can't control um, what's going to happen in our lives. And that's okay. You know, um, it's hard sometimes and it's really sad sometimes, um, but it's also really wonderful. So, so I guess, I don't know, you come to, you can, uh, come to a kind of peace with death <laughs> in most of the time, not always, you know? <laughs> So. Yeah. Well, the reason I started bawling at page 200, I even marked it down somewhere. Um, page 253, I started crying my eyes out because I started feeling afraid, you know, like that weird distance that I had um, growing up as a kid. It, it's different now. I've been in Toronto. I lived in Toronto for 11 years. And then I moved here to Ottawa in August of last year. And through my 11 years living in Toronto, I built deep friendships. My best friend, when I first met her, was diagnosed with cancer. And she had her thyroid removed, but it's still in the back mm -hmm. of my mind. Yeah. Um, so I got very scared. And so it's, I think I'm grateful to this conversation and us talking about how, yes, it, it is a scary thing, but it's not about living in that fear. It's, it's kind of trying to make peace with it or learning to make peace with it. And it actually loops back to something else that um, I loved about your book, which is Carpe oh. Diem. And you lead with that. <laughs> you lead yes. with that. And I think it's a beautiful thing once you dig deeper underneath the saying. And our, our entry into it, which was partly that that very over-the-top film, Dead Poet Society, yes. <laughs> which, we, which we loved when we were 16, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, of course, in the back of your mind, there would be a worry for your friend. And I mean, and you know that from what you said about your younger years, having all of these incidents sort of woven into your family life and yeah i mean so people are losing people they love every like right now like every day you know as we're talking about this and you know i won't talk about this too much because it's very fresh and i would probably wind up um getting a little too emotional but we we lost my father recently so that's the 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 the, the freshest grief and loss in my life and um, having lost people before doesn't make that any less of a loss, but I think it helps to know that you sort of, you, that we can adjust to new realities. And it doesn't mean we forget the people that we've lost or leave them behind or um, you get to the end of some sort of process, you know, but you sort of, you somehow readjust your space and yourself for a different, a different way of having this person with you. And sometimes it works better than other times, but to know that it's possible um, it, it helps, you know? Yeah. 
I think that's a great line for our listeners to latch on to. Or a great sentiment, at least. <laughs> There's so much um, going on right now to do with the pandemic that is it's so difficult for people, you know? And, and, and the circumstances are, are wrenching in some cases in, in ways that many of us never would have imagined experiencing. And yeah, and I think it's top of mind for a lot of people and yeah. hard for sure, like you say, especially with school reopening and, yeah. you know, <laughs> borders, <laughs> the potentiality of borders reopening always on the horizon every two months, potentially. So it is scary, but, um, you know, that brings me to another favorite quote of mine, even mythical beasts had things oh. to fear. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that's a beautiful line. It's it's also very poetic, which is a huge nod to your experience as writing as a poet um, and moving through each chapter. I actually felt that you know every every chapter had its own poetic license, while it's simultaneously weaving in and out of the chapters that border it, and. Um, I think that's you know both a great analogy of how we can kind of move through the pandemic and where we find ourselves right now, um, but also, you know, out from a genre writing point of view, a more technical writing point of view, like how do you find that you do that move between the realms of creative nonfiction and? and well, I. So I started out in my working life as a journalist and mostly doing magazine writing, um, <clears throat> uh, like more than 25 years ago now. And um, when magazines were in a different place in the world, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and, you know, uh, if you read the book, you'll see that, um, there was lots of high school poetry writing going on, but I never really put any stock in, it was like an activity like playing baseball. It was just something we did for fun, you know? Um, so I never really planned or intended to be writing poems when I was older, but um, I came to them at one point through another writer here in Ottawa who has sadly also since died, Diana Brebner, who um, some people might know who are local, that there's a art poetry magazine gives out a prize in her, in her name every year to a, an emerging poet. And which was like the hub of my neighborhood as far as I'm concerned. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. And, um, and uh, she was doing short fiction and poetry and I wanted to do you, like I was just getting tired because I was constantly on deadlines writing things for places like marketing magazine and Quill Inquire and a lot of really businessy journalism and um and I wanted to do something a little more creative a little more fun so I told her I, I wanted to take her class but I really wanted to write stories and she said let's just see what happens <laughs> and what happened was I loved writing poems, something clicked, and I started doing it as a procrastination when I was on deadline and I couldn't 
get my head around the structure of my article and I was fed up. So I would just put it aside and start working on a poem. So I don't know that, that that was a very long way to answer your question about transitioning between genres, but I think it's just like somehow at that time, that's what naturally fit together for me. Um, uh, like the, the poems helped clear my head in a way and gave me a space to breathe. And then I could go back and do that different kind of more practical thinking. Um, and, and then it just sort of ballooned from there and became a, a habit, <laughs> I guess. And, um, and I also wrote, was writing a little bit of fiction and I'm veering very slowly back toward that now, maybe. So there's just lots of, I don't think, I think just that's how some of us roll, I guess. We have lots of things we want to try and lots of ways that things come together in, in our minds. And it's like, this is a poem. Somehow it just feels like a poem or this is, this is an essay or this, you know, it depends. I don't know. It's, it's um, just where your nose takes you. You know, some writers just move in and out of different genres, and, and it's kind of where the creativity flows and where the creativity goes. I think what's interesting to me actually is what you mentioned earlier about having the the writings of your time with Louisa. Well, it took me a long time to figure out all of these years as you're writing all of these book, different things and as yeah. you're meeting all and to and I guess to believe in the value of our story just as two ordinary teenage and and young adults you know um canadian girls without any special circumstances in their lives except louisa's illness so i worked on it on and off for many years in between you know doing all of my actual journalism and writing some books of poems and editing a poetry magazine and doing all that. So there were long periods where I just put, put these pages away because I didn't know what to do. And then I would go back. And so it was just something that had to, um, I had to catch up to it, I guess. You know, in some ways, I think it took me 25 Louisa was 22. I was 22 when she died. It took me 25 more years to grow up to where she was when we lost her in order to be able to accept what she had no choice but to accept, I guess. Yeah. I want to thank you, Anita, for taking the time to sit down with me. Um, to everyone listening in still, please pick up a copy of The Last Goldfish. Then call your best friend, not necessarily in that order. But I'd love to close out with a few other of my favorite lines. Lou had hoped I'd find safe harbor with Ryan. I did for a time. She was right to worry for me before she died. I've been learning ever since how to exist in her wake, compiling who I am all over again without her by my side. That was Ellen Chang Richardson in conversation with Anita Leahy about her book, The Last Goldfish. Thank you all for listening today, and thanks again to Ithil, Dakshana, Ellen, and Anita for participating in Writers' Festival Radio. 
The Writers' Festival, including this podcast, is made possible by support from the Government of Canada, from the Government of Ontario, from the City of Ottawa, the Canada Council for the Arts, and the Ontario Arts Council. It is also supported by charitable donations from generous individuals like you. If you enjoy what we do, please consider making a tax-creditable donation at writersfestival.org. Join us on Tuesday for Living with Dying Part 2, featuring Sherry Fitch and Lorna Crozier. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Mm-hmm.